Well, just for the sake of, you know, keeping good accountability, I, I have to say something in public. The other day, this woman said to me, you have a really beautiful face. <laughs> and she said it right in front of Debbie. She went on to say, you are really a very nice-looking young man. Now, I don't know about the rest of all you middle-aged guys, but that doesn't get said to me every day. I don't think it gets said to me every decade. But in terms of perspective, it might help you to know that she's uh, 95 years old. Debbie and I were at a nursing home. She speaks Spanish, so I'm not sure exactly what she was saying. And I think she might have been partially blind. But <laughs> that is the power of uh, perspective. So in Epiphany this year, we've been thinking outwardly. And when we get to Lent, and we'll talk a bit more about that in the announcements this morning, uh, we'll think a bit more about the inner journey and spiritual formation and that sort of thing. But I just know that when you use the E word, the evangelism word, around most Christians today, uh, it's not normally a fun thought. And so as we talk about it a bit more this week and in the next week or two before we get to Lent, I just want to remind you that this is a no guilt zone, no shame, no pressure, no manipulation. Um, but even just this morning, just an opportunity to take an honest look at the true attitudes that are inside of us. And to just realize before we go anywhere that we're not the first people to have ever been a bit reluctant about what it means to share our faith in a setting in which it's becoming increasingly awkward to do so. You might think of Pharaoh's, or excuse me, Moses' reluctance to talk to Pharaoh. It was only a few weeks ago we read the story of Jonah in Nineveh and his reluctance to go to Nineveh. And what I wanna show you this morning is that even as the church year provides us a rhythm that's sort of inward and outward, I think that fundamental to and essential to Christian growth is this twin journey that is a bit cyclical, this sort of journey inward, journey outward. And some of us, based on temperament, history, gifts, psychology, family of origin, I don't know. Some of us tilt towards the journey inward more easily. Others of us tilt more easily to the journey outward. But I think we get on the wrong path when we trim the biblical narrative so that we don't need to trim ourselves. Because over a few you know, years or decades of following Christ, depending on your bent or tilt, you learn to read the scriptures through that lens and you don't see the things so much that challenge you. And all I wanna do in these weeks is just to have sort of a gentle way of saying, let's look at this because there's a part of our formation, in my estimation, there's a part of our formation that cannot be complete without others. And those others, as we'll see from Paul here in a moment, are at least two things. It's us. We can't get to the kind of formation that we want to get to without each other, the whole business of iron sharpening iron. And I think there's a sense in which we can't get the fullness of our formation in Christ without others, meaning like the poor 
or others, meaning those outside of faith. There's something that happens in those engagements, at least I can say for myself. There's something that happens in those engagements where I get aware of things in me that are not transformed, and I wouldn't be aware of that if I wasn't having those sorts of engagements. Does that make sense? Like, I'll give you a really quick, for instance, when I see really profound brokenness, I like literally get sick to my stomach. Like, I can like feel butterflies, and I get queasy, and I don't like it, and I want to run. And when I've thought about it, I've, you know, well, it makes me think about it. And then I maybe think, hmm, I wonder if what's going on here in my own formation, I wonder if what's being revealed to me is a need to be in control. And that if I'm, if I'm around brokenness that I can deal with, well, then what? I, I'm still left a bit in control. But if I'm confronted with brokenness that seems out of my capacity to deal with it, well, now I start feeling really uneasy. And uh, you can see that I've thought about this over the years. And for me, it, it taps into things like my need to be in control, my need to fix things, a bit of perfectionism. Well, see, I wouldn't necessarily be confronted with those things if I weren't engaging with the other and so there's this rhythm that I just want to show you this morning, and, and you see it really playing out in our passage this morning that we read in Corinthians, that Paul is engaging with the other in the sense that he's having trials from within the church. There are people who are doubting his um, apostleship, you might say, and who are wondering about him as an apostle, and then he's got challenges dealing with the very secular uh, culture in Corinth. And so what I think the readings show us this morning is that the epiphany, of course, begins with the incarnation of Christ to the earth. And that, along with what we're going to read this morning from Corinthians, I think shows us how to enter their world. So the backstory here quickly is that Paul's credentials are being questioned. And Paul's defending himself, and he's defending his rights as an apostle. And he's especially saying that I have the right, if I wanted to, to earn my living from you. Jesus said that those who do the gospel should earn their living from the gospel, you know, that you shouldn't, you know, um, muzzle the ox while he's shedding grain, you know, just think of those things that would have been going on in the back of Paul's mind, and he's saying, I have the right to this. But he says, I don't boast about preaching the gospel because preaching the gospel I'm compelled to do. You know, God laid this on me is what the text says. This is something that's been put on me. And so woe to me if I don't do it because Paul's thinking metaphorically in his mind, I'm a slave to Christ, just as a metaphor. If a slave doesn't do what he's supposed to do, well, then woe to that slave. So that's the kind of metaphor that's going on in the back of Paul's mind. So he says, if I preach, there's no boast in that. I'm just doing what God laid his hands upon me to do. Here's my boast. I do it for free. And I do it for free so you can't manipulate me. That's basically what's happening here, that you don't own me, God owns me, Christ owned me, and I want to make sure that that's happening. So after explaining his rights, I want you to look at your passage in 1 Corinthians 9 there in your bulletin. After explaining his rights, he explains why he set them aside. And it's important to note here that Paul's not being phony, he's not being a wishy-washy person, he's not being unprincipled. Uh, Towards the end of the text, we see why he's done all this. He says, in order to reach people for Christ. So I like the way Eugene Peterson gets this in the message where he says, he has Paul saying, even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I voluntarily become a servant to any and all. See, this isn't him being wishy-washy. This isn't that Paul has no scruples or no principles, but Paul's operating from a different set of principles, a higher set of principles. 
where he says, I voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. But he says, I didn't take on their way of life. I became like a Jew to those who are Jewish. I became like a Gentile to those who are without the law. I became like the weak for those who are weak. And that's one of the things that would have made Paul so scandalous in Corinth, this great city that valued political power and macho might and economic power. And when Paul would say things like, to the weak I become like the weak, it made them go, well, that's not very apostolic. That doesn't seem like somebody who's an apostle of this, you know, great reigning king. And they couldn't get it. So Paul says, I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world. And I tried to experience things from their point of view. Now, you know, all of us have been around long enough, you know, to have heard this kind of talk, you know. Well, the church needs to, you know, sort of get out of its buildings and, you know, not just invite people to church, but get out there. And, you know, we've all heard that a hundred times. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Not exactly. When he says, I entered their world, he means, um, I made significant relationships. Now again, Paul's not operating out of what we might think of as a biblical worldview. Paul's more operating out of something more like the way, if you're old enough, you might think of the 60s. Me just saying that, you can easily picture Paisley, right? And you can easily picture tie-dye stuff. Well, Paul could easily picture that story that scandalous story of Jesus talking to a woman at the well, alone and in public. Paul could easily remember Jesus letting that prostitute weep on his feet, going to a party at Matthew's house, offering to have dinner with this terrible, you know, notorious sinner, Zacchaeus. That's all the tape that's running in the back of Paul's mind. And so he has Jesus as his model, but not in a religious sense, not in a the sense of like policy in a church, but compassion. Deep, deep compassion for people he could see was outside of Christ. That's why Paul says, I entered their world. Jesus became like whatever he had to become to talk to that woman at the well. I'm happy to become weak to the weak. I'm happy to meet Jewish people on their terms. I'm happy to meet Gentile people on their terms. But I haven't lost my bearings in Christ. I'm not taking on their way of life. He says, but here's my overarching logic. You're asking me to be consistent. Because the rest of the Jewish rabbis, they don't go with the weak and they don't go with the Gentiles. They live consistent lives. And Paul's saying, fooey on your consistency. Why does consistency trump everything? Paul's saying, here's my consistency. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my effort to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. Paul says, that's my consistency. I'm operating on a consistency that's on a much higher lane uh, level than the sort of social, political level you're working on. So for Paul, it's everything, anything for the gospel. Flexibility, adaptability, versatility. Showing compassion. I believe what's really running in Paul's imagination, simply put, is the golden rule. Treat people the way you'd want to be treated. So to the Jews, talk to them on their terms. Be loving, be open, be flexible, be adaptable. 
have a conversation. To the Gentiles, those without the law, you can talk to them on their terms. It's, it's not, conversation is not compromise. And again, I think he's seeing Jesus as his model and teacher. And in fact, if you'll look at your uh, reading in the gospel this morning, I think we see here like the perfect rhythm of the journey inward and the journey outward and how these things work together and form what for me I kind of call uh, the rhythm of the kingdom life. I don't remember what I did this for. It's like 20 or 25 years ago. I don't remember. I wrote some talk for something. And I, and I talked about as I, I, well, here's what I did. I read, I just sort of quickly read through the whole New Testament one day, sorry, the four gospels one day, just kind of looking at Jesus's life. And what I clearly noticed was that there was this rhythm to his life where he'd be alone in private and then out calling disciples and then alone in a desert place and out healing the sick and then alone in a garden and out preaching the gospel and then alone somewhere where he'd leave his disciples and then out with crowds. And you see this rhythm all through all four of the gospels, this sort of rhythm of what life in the kingdom is like. And we see it in our passage this morning. And it helps us see, let's first look at sort of the essential outward or otherliness of Jesus where he heals Simon's mother-in-law. Well, what for? Like, why? I mean, there's a lot of other stuff going along, a lot of things he could have done, but Jesus has this sort of basic, compassionate otherliness. Well, word gets out about this, and so they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And at dusk, because these were mostly Jews, and ironically, it was illegal to heal on the Sabbath. And so they had to wait till it was dusk and the Sabbath was over, and then these crowds came to the house. The whole city, the text says, was gathered, and he healed many people who were sick and cast out many demons. And as I think I said last week, what, what Mark wants us to know is this is the essential way that the epiphany spread, what some people have called power evangelism. And that is to say, if you were to look through the, all the New Testament, but especially the Gospels and Acts, you will see that whenever Jesus or the apostles do these sort of deeds of power, wherever there's miraculous healings or, or the driving out of demons or um, multiplication of food or wherever you see these miracles, the gospel spreads. And so Mark wants us to know this is what's been happening. But now look what happens next. You begin to see the, the rhythm of Jesus' life and arising very early in the morning. So dusk is over, it's turned to night. He's healed and driven out demons and I'm sure stayed up all night answering people's questions going, how in the world did you just do that? How do you speak and demons flee? And so very early in the morning, Jesus gets up while it's still dark and does what? Goes out to a desolate place, from public to private, where he prayed. And this, of course, Mark wants us to know is the source of Jesus' quiet and gentle but deeply effective authority. And what I would want to suggest to you this morning just for our own kind of practical learning during this epiphany season is that I think both the inward and the outward journey depend on time alone and depend on silence and solitude. It's not just the inward journey of our own formation that is dependent on silence or solitude and its partner that which cre uh, completes its silence. But I, I think once you get out there and you start engaging the other, 
whether it's making friends in your community and engaging with people, really life on life, or once you start really engaging with the poor or those outside of faith, you're going to find that you need in a way that you've never needed before to have this rhythm in your own life of silence and solitude and quiet. And of course, Isaiah and the psalmist, those readings this morning are just really promising us what awaits us in silence and solitude. Isaiah says, God energizes those who get tired. He gives fresh strength to those who feel like they want to drop out because it's too hard. And that those who wait upon God will get really fresh strength. They'll spread their wings and soar like eagles. They'll run but not get tired. They'll walk but not lag behind. And again, Isaiah, who's been in this game, he's been a prophet, and he's felt the energy and life go out of his body and then felt the energy of God replenish it. He's felt this rhythm. I think Isaiah would want us to know that when in this twin journey, you feel life beginning to crush you. When you feel like you literally can't go another step, like a young, even a young man who's going to stumble, that Isaiah would say, remember, God renews and gives fresh strength. Or as the psalmist said, his understanding has no limit. Now, I think even, I can't remember for sure, but I think even sometime in the last 24 hours, I've basically accused God of, like, do you see what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, like, are you really in tune with uh, all I got going on? And uh, you really got my back here? Like, this is your stuff, and we're doing this together, and I think I'm doing this after you? Like, are we on the same page here, God? And so it's good to know that his understanding has no limit. That sometimes when we don't understand ourselves, even what we want or how we feel or what's wrong with us or what we should do about it, God knows us fully. And this, by the way, I would say is the great gift of spiritual direction or a spiritual friend or a small group or just somebody who can be with you in this process to remind you that it's God who knows you fully. Because in really good spiritual direction, there's kind of a triangle created. And all the director's spiritual friend is doing is trying to get you connected to this God who knows you fully. I don't know you fully. Even as your pastor, and in that sense, directing you, you know, being your uh, father in the faith, I don't know you like your father in heaven does, but I can help you get connected to him because his understanding is full. And when you feel like, I don't even know what I want, I don't even know what's going on in me, his understanding has no limit. And he heals up the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, sustaining the humble, so says the psalmist. And that he's not impressed with our horsepower or the size of our muscles. It's those who fear God, the psalmist says. It's those who... who um, we started this morning saying, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that's, that blessed means to be honored, to be set aside, to be made ultimately the other. Those who fear, that's what it means to fear God. Those who have that kind of awe of God, they're the ones who get God's attention. And they're the ones, the psalmist said, who can depend on his strength. Well, look at your uh, gospel passage and look what happens again. Let us now go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for this is why I came. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. 
in public, ministering, in private with his God who has full understanding of everything he was feeling, all the doubts, all the wonderings of what it meant to be human and divine, all that Jesus must have wrestled with, wrestling with it in private, acting it out in public, and on and on and on it goes. Well, as I close here, one last little epiphany thought as we think of epiphany being outward this year. And I want to remind you of a passage that I don't think we'll read this epiphany of Mark 11, where Jesus drives out the money changers. Do you remember that? That story where he overturns the tables and drives out the money changers. Well, let me just tell you quickly what was happening there. What was happening there is, you know, you're in the temple precincts, and so you have the Holy of Holies, which, of course, not even all Jews can go into, not even all male Jews, but only the high priest. And then you've got a court outside of that in which all Jewish males can go in. And then you had courts around that. And, this, and you had these two courts that were right next to each other, the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women. And the Jews had taken those two spaces and turned it over to religious commerce. The only places in the Jewish temple precinct where outsiders could be, the religious people took them and made them their own. And they took them and made them for own, their own only for convenience. They didn't want to have to walk around across the equivalent of the parking lot to exchange their money. So they took places that God had set aside for those who were outsiders, and they made them their own. And Jesus said, no flipping way. This is to be a place of prayer where outsiders can connect with God. You are not going to take this space that's dedicated to outsiders and make it all about you. So I think the little epiphany thought for us this morning is, I really think if we start to make space in our heart for outsiders, we will naturally make space in the liturgy for them. It will happen naturally. Because behavior always follows one's heart. And I think just like the rhythm of inner and out, I think as we begin to make space in our liturgy, our worship for outsiders, I think our hearts will change as well. This is how these journeys work. Love and grace and generosity are the fruit of the journey inward, as are welcoming and listening. You can't do that without becoming the kind of person who would listen and welcome. And they, in turn, enable this journey outward where we meet the challenges both within ourselves and within our culture, and then that just simply points us back to the journey inward. And it's this rhythm of the spiritual life, this spiritual transformation and essential otherliness that's happened for 2,000 years. And it's the journey, not just in this epiphany season, but in our years and decades ahead that I hope we can go on together.